Hey folks, welcome to the last Patreon exclusive news show that's barely a news show at all and that will only be exclusive for half a week. Six months is an okay run for something that's never really found its stride, at least in terms of me finding time to write and record it, and I'm okay with it ending here. I'm hearing back from law schools now, again, which is really getting me focused on Vietnam because this may well be the last time in my life I'll be able to tackle it. I've got a couple of hundred dates into a timeline and maybe one more day's work till that's done. Then it's the outline, populating that outline, finally printing my giant wall map and writing. Best case is we've got a first episode recorded inside of two weeks. I'm pretty excited about it. All this would be happening much faster, you understand, but the 50 states job is eating up more of my time than I'd anticipated. Hopefully, as I get better at it, at reporting, I can cut that time down some, but for the moment I'm just working feverishly on SFD as soon as I finish each day with the other thing. That's what's going on with me, anyway. I'm John Coombs, we're talking about monopolies, and this is News for Democracy, sort of. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. I'm giving you folks a more workmanlike show this time around. A little less lofty, a little less philosophical, and a little more down in the mud. I've outlined a few things in the last several episodes about capitalism, ends and means, and maintenance. Some of those aspire to pretty grandiose goals. When I talk about ends, for instance, the idea I'm really tilting at is getting all of society to sit down and agree, maybe for the first time since the American Revolution, maybe since 1965 and the Great Society, maybe really for the first time ever, 
on a collective point that we ought to head towards, rather than trusting in a kind of Hegelian notion that we're all headed somewhere worthwhile by default, by some basic parameter that's baked into civilization. When I talk about maintenance and capitalism, I'm looking a little lower down. Capitalism as we practice it has many good features, like the creation of wealth and a whole host of negative externalities that go with it. Pollution, inequality, deprivation, corruption, the destruction of democratic politics, and the maintenance that we owe, the Sisyphean boulder we ought to shoulder every day, is the work of wrangling capitalism so that it works for the many and not only for the few. Capitalism is like a vast tide, and at some points, like from the 30s to the 60s, we're throwing up new dikes and reinforcing the ones we've already got. In times of reaction, like the 1980s through till now, we're watching the water wash over our little earthen works, and if we're lucky enough to have even enough power for fingers, jamming those in as many leaks as we can see. SFD is hopefully, in its own small way, covering a couple of those leaks. The point is, though, that the waters keep rising, whether or not we can give them our full attention. And that, like water, capitalism will find the chinks in our defenses long before we're aware of them. That's part of the arduousness of our task of maintenance. It demands rapt attention and constant effort, and then even at our best, we'll always be fighting a rearguard action, rather than one to overmaster the tide itself. That would be a revolution, a decision on our end after which there will hopefully, or would hopefully, be a less exhausting kind of maintenance left to do. All of which is to say that in Donald Trump and his administration, we've been handed something so dangerous on so many fronts that we've necessarily had to turn away from the dikes to face it. He's a symptom of the sickness in our system, but he's threatening to tear down everything beyond the berms, along with the levees themselves, so we've been watching him instead of them. But even as we do, the waters keep rising and surging and finding their way through. And in this episode, I want to talk about just one of the ways that capitalism's been sneaking up on and hosing us, something that's been going on for decades, and which we were beginning to pay attention to at the end of Obama's last term, but which Trump has distracted us from almost entirely. And that's monopolies and oligopolies in our economy. An old Clinton White House guy named Robert Reich, who was one of the first to pick out that increasing economic inequality may be one of the great challenges facing us, he wrote a book a couple of years ago that picked out the domination of our economy by monopolies and oligopolies as the great problem in front of the country. I think Reich is a really smart guy, and maybe even more importantly, a really good-hearted guy. But as far as I can see, we've got way too many problems to pick out any one as the er issue, with an easy or comparatively easy or simple er solution. We're aft nine ways to Sunday, and this is only one issue among dozens. But in any case, it's what we're talking about today. First off, in plain language, what are monopolies and oligopolies? Basically, a monopoly is a situation where you've got only one player in a given market, and an oligopoly is one where you've only got a few. The U.S. has two pretty classic examples of both of these in its history. For Monopoly, there was Ma Bell, the Bell Telephone System, which ran most of the telephones in the U.S. and Canada from 1877 to 1984, as Wikipedia says, quote, at various times as a monopoly, unquote. You wanted to make a call for most of that century, you did it through Ma Bell, period. And before the entrance of the Asian automakers, we had an oligopoly in cars. The big three. GM, Chrysler, and Ford made all of the vehicles in the U.S., with a couple of exceptions for anyone rich enough to buy European, like BMW or Ferrari or the like. 
Now, in an Econ 101 course, you'll learn that classical economics frowns on oligopolies and monopolies. The ideal situation, per that same economics course, in any given market is perfect competition. The graph for that, and I'll have it and all the others in the show notes, has a price on the Y, or vertical axis, and the quantity of goods produced on the X. The supply curve tracks one-to-one on that graph, bottom left to top right. That is, as the price paid for a given item increases, companies are willing to produce more of it. This makes intuitive sense to us. If you're selling bread, you're willing to make and sell much more of it when it costs $100 a loaf than when it costs $1. The demand curve, which represents buyers, it comes down from top left to bottom right so that the two lines, supply and demand, make a pretty little X right in the middle of the graph. The idea being that as purchasers, we don't want to buy much bread at $100, but we're really into bread at one. The point where those two curves meet, the center of the X, is the point at which we're happy to buy and the producer is happy to sell, and that's known as market equilibrium. When I talked about the free market as a great tool to agree on prices, this is what I meant. Again, in classical economics, this simple X graph is meant to represent perfect competition, a market where there's zero cost to getting in and out. A market like the one there is for lemonade stands, where anybody can get in for almost no money and getting out doesn't hurt for the exact same reason. And in such a market, products get sold at cost. There's no profit to be had. The lemonade stand operator makes exactly enough to cover costs, including her own salary, and we pay what's basically the bare minimum for a cup of lemonade. Profit is achieved in classical terms by getting the consumer to pay for a product more than what it costs to make. If we look around, there are all sorts of ways to do that. The simplest, or well, maybe not the simplest, but the most that we see, is branding. If I can convince you that my lemonade is better than Susie's down the block, even though they're really the same, I could charge you more. One of the craziest ways this has ever been done was with Shiva's Regal Scotch. You folks, if you know Shiva's or you know Scotch, know that it's a pretty pricey bottle of liquor. But what's fascinating is that for most of its history, it was bottom-shelf scotch. The Shivas folks were trying to figure out how to give themselves some prestige with which they could charge more for their product and thus eke out more profit. And they hit upon this brilliant idea. Without changing anything except the label to make it look a little higher class, they doubled the price of the bottle. Just like that, buyers began to perceive Shiva's Regal Scotch as high quality, and the company doubled revenues without ever changing a thing about the liquor itself. Classical economics, or at least its implementation in our day, doesn't embrace this kind of thing, advertising, basically, but it doesn't really frown on it either. More or less, if you can convince someone to pay more for something than it costs to make, more power to you. The thing that Econ 101 doesn't like is when you force a consumer to pay more for something than a perfect competition graph would dictate. And this is where monopolies and oligopolies come in. When one firm or a small group of firms dominates the market for something, they can set the price for it, rather than having to find one mutually with consumers. Say there's one firm in the whole world that makes those hats that fit two beers with a straw that goes into your mouth. You pay whatever price that hat maker wants, or you aren't getting a hat, because there's no one else to sell you one. Monopolies of that kind exist everywhere. Anytime you invent a product, you've got a monopoly at least for a little while and a little longer if you've got a good patent and some lawyers to protect it. And when a monopoly dominates a market like the one for beer hats, we call that a market with flexible demand. Sure, you'd like a beer hat, but if it's going to cost $100 from Beer Hats International, 
you'll just put the can in your hand, thanks. In markets with flexible demand, the monopoly doesn't have that much price-setting power because people can just do without whatever the thing is. The problem comes in when a market exists for a product with inflexible demand. And the real er example of inflexible demand is food. Or food, water, and shelter. You get a monopoly on those things and your only worry as a producer is charging just low enough that your consumers don't die on you. If you take a look at the Econ 101 curves for monopolies and oligopolies, they allow companies to maximize profit by producing less and charging more than what perfect competition would dictate. I'm not going to explain those graphs on air because they are much less easy to describe, but I'll have them in the show notes too. And I'm pretty on board with all this stuff. Perfect competition doesn't and can't exist, and consumers are neither as smart nor as rational as the graphs would like to think, but in general, yeah, competition good and price fixing and waste by way of monopoly and oligopoly bad. Inasmuch as they do generate outsized profits to benefit the few, they do the rest of us pretty dirty. The thing that I can't agree with is that classical economics believes that, left alone, markets prefer to work towards perfect competition, and that in general it's distortions of the market landscape that lead to the establishment of monopolies and oligopolies. There I've got to draw the line, because it seems clear that for all of history, markets have preferred consolidation and have worked in that direction, and that distortions of the market are really the only thing staving off consolidation or are the only things that can stave off consolidation, even if at other times they encourage it. Start small. Remember the little economy from a few weeks ago? You farm wheat, the miller mills it, I bake it into bread, and we all trade our thing for the other two as we need them? I said then that if we were budding capitalists, we'd be saving up to buy the means of production of the other two people. But rather than encouraging competition, whichever one of us made the first move would pretty quickly shove the other two out of the market. If you buy your mill first, you've cut out all the transaction costs you had between the wheat and the flour. You can now sell me that flour at a cheaper price and hose the miller. Soon enough, you'll buy an oven too, and if the miller and I are really lucky, you'll hire us to work in your monopolistic farm-to-table bread company. Look at practically any market and you'll see historical trends towards consolidation. There were dozens or hundreds of auto companies in the U.S. near the beginning of the last century. Now there are three. In ancient Rome, as soon as capital started to pour in from foreign wars, a small group of large landholders bought up all the farmable territory in Italy and spent the rest of the time under the empire trying to eat one another up to shrink that group still further. If you can control more of a market, you can exercise more control over price, bringing in more money to more easily dominate your smaller rivals. In U.S. history, in high school, we learn, or are supposed to learn, that consolidation in the U.S. had reached a critical point at the end of the 19th century, when a tiny collection of robber barons had consolidated the different businesses that made up the Industrial Revolution so that four or five families controlled most of the production in the whole country. We are also supposed to learn at that point that the country's official stance on the matter is, or used to be, that trust-busting, that is, breaking up large monopolistic consolidated firms, was good for the people and the nation. We learn, ideally, that one of the side effects of this great engine of capitalism is that it creates an industrial aristocracy that works at all times to dominate more and more of the commerce and politics of the country, and that it's the job of the government, pushed and prodded by the people, to break those big industrial trusts down to size so that they'll respond to and serve the consumer again. When we look at that fight in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, 
we find that until the people took the reins, both political parties tended to be the parties of industry. And we find that once the people started lashing one of them, business took over the other entirely. This is where we get the big switchover from liberal to conservative of the Democratic and Republican parties between Roosevelt and Roosevelt. The Democrats, after a period of indecision from the 1890s through the 1920s, became the party of the people, fully embracing that role under FDR and then later under Johnson. The GOP went the other way, defending the interests of money and industry. And FDR, who came from a decidedly Republican milieu up in New England, came under attack by people from that same milieu for being a class traitor. Leaving all that aside for a second, there's one area in which monopolies actually work pretty well, or two, and both have to do with the state. The first there is violence. If you're getting your money's worth out of a liberal arts education, you'll learn from Max Weber, a German political philosopher, that the classic definition of a state is an entity that exercises a monopoly on violence within a given territory. That is, you know you're in the U.S. when, ideally, the only people who are allowed to brutalize you are agents of the U.S. government. Police, soldiers, ICE officers, etc. That doesn't sound too pretty or too elegant, but it makes philosophical sense. The government that runs the state should ideally be the representative of the people, so that when a cop brings you in for a crime, the courts try you, and the penal system fines or incarcerates you by force, it's not the individual officer or judge or guard having it out for you. It's the will of the whole polity being exercised upon you. Unfortunately, in the U.S., we've gotten into the habit of renting out the people's monopoly on violence to the highest bidder through privatized police forces, paramilitaries like the company formerly known as Blackwater, and privatized prison systems. If you're in a private prison, as 7% of all state and 18% of all federal prisoners now are, and you're served moldy food, denied medical attention, forced to work without pay, and subjected to all the cruel and unusual, that is, unconstitutional, conditions that are endemic to private prisons in the U.S., the people don't have much input, and it's profit, rather than the polity, working itself out on your mind and body. That's a show for another day, but it's no kind of good thing. The other area that a state monopoly works really pretty well, and this is more on topic, is in infrastructure. We like the competition that I talked about earlier because, at least until it encourages consolidation and monopolization, it drives down costs for the consumer. The problem with infrastructure is that it's not very well suited to competition. Take roads, for example. If I build a road by your house, that's going to be your entire need for a road, and all of your house's capacity to host one. Another road isn't going to do you much good. Likewise, the costs of building infrastructure are in general totally outsized compared to the cost that we're willing to pay to use it. I can build a road out to your house, but you're not ever going to be willing or able to fork over the 2 to $3 million per mile it costs to lay down a two-lane road. Infrastructure also tends towards immediate monopolies, at least regionally, since once I've laid down that road, there's no incentive for anybody else to put one down. And since, once I've installed it, you've got no choice but to use the one I put there, I've got very little incentive to improve it. But I do have a huge incentive to charge you massive tolls to use it, since you've got to get to work somehow. So how should we handle infrastructure? Well, it turns out we've already hit on a pretty good model for this, one that is, appropriately enough for the U.S., only half socialist. Government builds the infrastructure. The government is able to make the huge necessary outlays of cash without the need to generate immediate profit. 
so it's in a position to build roads and telephone lines that reach everybody, even if it's not a great business decision. And because in an ideal world, government responds to the will of the people rather than the profit motive, government's got an incentive to keep that infrastructure maintained and up to date, even if it is, again, not a perfect choice for the balance sheet. What the government then does, or used to do, was, where it was possible, rent out that infrastructure to private companies. This is the deal we had, different at different points, sure, for more than a century with Ma Bell. The state built and maintained the lines, and Ma Bell paid to use them. The state made some of its money back, or all of it, depending, and even remote citizens got phone service. Moreover, because the state had final say on who got to use the lines it owned, it could constrain Ma Bell to offer rates that consumers were willing and able to pay. And it worked reasonably well. Not with Ma Bell, or not necessarily Ma Bell, or Ma Bell in particular, but this whole setup where a government built and rented infrastructure. And reasonably well is the metric I'm hammering at again and again in SFD. We in our wildest dreams should hope that everything works reasonably well, with constant brutal effort to keep it just that good. The problem being nowadays that this isn't the way it works in the U.S. anymore. For decades, the state has been selling off infrastructure, built at taxpayer expense, to private industry. Telecommunications is just about the best way to take a look at this one. In the 1990s, we sold off the cables and phone lines to whoever bid highest for them, with the idea that those companies would then shoulder the cost of maintaining and improving the infrastructure. Get government out of the way, in other words, and allow free market competition to have at it. How did that turn out? Well, profit-seeking companies did the obvious thing. They bought up regions of the U.S., dividing the country into a dozen little monopolies, and then charged people more and more for the use of the same aging infrastructure. They sought profits. Anywhere you go in the U.S., especially outside big cities, there's one internet provider, sometimes two by way of satellite. And you pay whatever the price is, because demand for the internet in the modern day is even more inflexible than those classical Econ 101 examples, like cigarettes and heroin. The service you get is poor, intermittent, expensive. It's always slower than the advertised rate. And if you call in to complain, you're abused and upsold, told that the next higher plan will finally do the trick. The wires that you're using are the very same copper cables as 30 years ago. Or, if you're lucky, your internet comes through infrastructure designed to deliver cable TV. Fiber optics exist only in municipalities where the local government has gone out of its way to get it built. Why? What went wrong? We gave the thing over to competition, so what was the problem? The issue is that the free market is garbage at infrastructure. It lends itself most to monopoly. Demand for it is totally inflexible and the lifting needed to change it, infrastructure, is so heavy that we the people can barely dream of putting another system into place. If you want to look further afield, power production works on the same principle. You've got one or at best two options for power companies, and while it's difficult to imagine any solution between wholly state-owned power or regional monopolies, since the costs of building a traditional plant are so high, those regional monopolies are now and have been using their power to hold back the development of a better power infrastructure in the U.S. They oppose efforts to switch over to cleaner generation, and they stymie any attempt to democratize power production through home solar, because all of that would chip away at the monopolistic stranglehold they have over your outlets. But the domination of our economy by monopolies and oligopolies is so much greater than that. Look at virtually any market. And despite a multitude of brands, you're really only seeing a few massive firms at the top. In farming, last year, 
There were six. Bayer, Monsanto, DuPont, Dow Chemical, Syngenta, and China National Chemical Corp. Today, there's only five, since Dow and DuPont merged, and they're trying to get that number down to three. Go into a Kroger or a Piggly Wiggly or a Safeway, and there's almost nothing you'll find in the food aisles apart from Kraft, PepsiCo, ConAgra, Nestle, General Mills, and Campbell's. If you throw in Unilever, you cover almost everything in the whole market. It's anywhere you look. Restaurant chains, airlines, even the tech sector. Google and Facebook between them corral over 70% of all internet traffic. Windows has 82% of all computers, with Mac OS taking up most of the rest. The smartphone market is divided between Microsoft, Google, and Apple, and that is it. Every other week we hear about another huge corporate merger, one that diminishes competition in a given market by a third or a half. And we aren't even hearing about nearly enough, since there have been 10 trillion dollars in corporate mergers just since 2008 in the U.S. alone. And what's interesting about all of those mergers is that the federal government legally has to review and approve them, which nowadays it nearly always does. But from where I'm sitting, as my dad often says to me and whoever else will listen, don't spend a single second or a single cent investigating. If one firm owns 25% of the market and the other owns 26, there you go. No deal. Don't do it. Save yourself the time. And Dad's right, because you really don't need to do that much research. The heavy lifting is in making it appear that this process of continual consolidation and monopolization will somehow benefit consumers and the country, whereas it's terribly easy to acknowledge that, in fact, it does exactly the opposite. Those simple Econ 101 graphs we talked about earlier, the ones that the very same economists who are working their butts off to justify these mergers like to deify, they tell us that consolidation necessarily hurts the consumer. It's a law of how markets work. That the companies are pursuing them should be our best clue that they're no good for us. Going back to simple econ, companies seek profits. That's why they want the mergers, because they'll be more profitable afterwards. But we as consumers, we don't want profitable companies, unless that profit derives, like Shiva's Regals, from them convincing us to pay more. Profit, in any other sense, is a kind of waste, forcing us to shell out more than the market equilibrium price for a given good, forcing us to pay more than what it costs to produce. Not only that, but forcing us to pay more than cost for something, while at the same time decreasing its quality and the quality of the service we receive. It should be obvious to us that we, the consumers, aren't making out better now, that there are one quarter fewer airlines than there were in 2000. The lines and the delays and the mixed-up baggage and the prices should be proof enough. That one telecom gobbles up another is bad for us. And we can see it in that service in a city with several services is better than the five-hour-long calls with Comcast over a service that's never been as fast as what we pay for that tend to consume our lives as we move further out into the countryside. So what gifts? Why do companies keep gobbling up more and more of their respective markets to our detriment? And why is it that they can do so despite those government checks which were themselves put in place as part of the first so-called progressive reaction to large trusts that we talked about a bit ago? The answer is various, and it's got a lot of parts, but I think there are only two main prongs. Those two are corporate capture and the Reagan revolution. Corporate capture works in two ways. The first is the textbook definition, which is the way we normally use it. And that's where a regulatory agency tends to get most of its hires or most of its expertise from the industry that it regulates. Take the IRS's Financial Investigation Division, 
which is so underfunded and understaffed that it has to rely on banks and financial institutions to give it the information it needs to investigate them. Or take financial regulation together with energy. The heads of the agencies in charge of those industries often enough come from Wall Street and big oil, so that the priorities are slanted towards business from the very beginning. And then people working in the agencies are often enough angling for much better paying jobs in those industries once they're done with government work, which doesn't much encourage them to engage in crackdowns. The other way that corporations capture or industry captures the government institutions that are supposed to be restraining them is by capturing politics. That's something I've talked about a bit in a whole lot of shows, but the free flow of cash into PACs, super PACs, and political parties all cause the state to serve corporations rather than to regulate or restrain them. The other big prong here is the Reagan Revolution. Ronald Reagan, buoyed by a conservative movement that had been growing since Goldwater in the 1960s, one that was irrigated by Ayn Rand, Chicago School Economics, and crazies like the John Birch Society, he sold us the idea that poor, put-upon corporate America was being oppressed by unions and government, and that it needed to be set free. This was just trickle-down economics by another name, but we bought it. As a whole country, we bought it. There are still union guys who might suck it up and vote for Obama if they have to, but who are praying for a return of the Gipper, despite all of the harm that he did them. We, in fact, bought this thesis so hard that the Democratic Party, hitherto at least in ideal the party of the people, decided that the only way to win an election was to, in its own word, triangulate and become a second party of business. Republicans in the 1990s, riding high on Reagan and Bush Sr., were talking about shrinking government down until you could drown it in a bathtub. The Democratic Party, rather than making a full-throated defense of the American century that it had built, the one based on the New Deal and the Great Society, capitulated to that idea. Clinton talked not about the great good that government could do and had done, but just rephrased small government as smart government and pursued a Republican agenda. That sell-off of the telecom infrastructure that we talked about a little while ago, that was a Bill Clinton initiative. Clinton also put the last nail in the coffin of Glass-Steagall, the regulation that we enacted after the Great Depression to keep banks as banks instead of speculators in the market. The immediate direct effect of which was that banks became speculators in the mortgage markets, and within just over a decade managed to crash the world economy in the Great Recession. The Democratic Party still hasn't figured out how to be the party of the people again. It's too addicted to corporate campaign funding, too riddled with Wall Street hacks, too beholden to industry at large. Obama, when he was faced with the financial crisis, had two distinct choices. The banks had sold trillions in financial instruments based on junk mortgages, and then they all went bust, leaving millions of Americans indebted and underwater, and the banks with bad balance sheets. At that point, you could either give money directly to the indebted to pay off their properties, thus fixing one problem and paying the banks off to fix the other problem at the same time. Or you could give the money directly to the banks, rewarding them for criminal negligence and leaving them to also collect all of the mortgage payments of the people they'd swindled. Obama did what a modern Democrat would do, and even if he'd wanted to do differently, he did the only thing a modern Democratic Congress would support, which was to bail out the banks and do nothing for the people who were supposedly the constituency of the party. And the problem is twofold now. Corporations have captured our politics. That's an inevitable force in capitalism, but ideally you've got one party fighting against it, restraining the effort at capture, and you manage to make things work pretty well, which, remember, is about as good as we can ever get. 
But rather than having one party in opposition to the forces of business, the incredible, terrible success of the Reagan revolution has left us with two parties competing to be the better lapdogs of industry, and leaving us the people, the consumers, with no recourse. Trump has been awful enough to make even hard leftists look back to the soft corporate days under Obama as a kind of halcyon time, and even to lose sight of the battles we were fighting then as we've been absorbed by Trump's war on America. But there are two things we've got to keep in mind. The first is that even as Trump's White House gets more clownish and grotesque, the government under him is pursuing the same Reaganite ends as ever. The Interior Secretary, Ryan Zinke, is selling off public lands to private industry and inaugurating new coal plants. The EPA is opening ANWR to drilling and shutting down investigations into carcinogenic chemicals. Ajit Pai at the FCC is giving away net neutrality to the telecoms, as credulously as we gave away the infrastructure in the 1990s. We've got to keep fighting all of that even as we fight to save the bases of our republic from the administration's daily onslaughts. But if and when we manage to retake the government from these monsters, we've got to hold the Democratic Party to account. They've been totally complicit in transforming the government of the United States from one rooted in the popular will to one that comes at the beck and call of corporations. Grateful as we might be for the Democrats returning a degree of normalcy in government, we have to demand, in primaries and elections, that they go back to the ideals that drove the party through the first two-thirds of the last century. It may be, as the Republicans allege, that we need their opposition to keep us from running off the liberal deep end into a government-regulated, death-impaneled, Obamacarian socialist hellscape. But unless we take at least one of our parties back from industry, no matter how normal politics appears in Washington, the corporations are going to finish what they've started, eating us alive. <laughs>